So I've really been looking forward to this week because it's on one of the most widely used yet contentious issues in science, and yet a lot of people will never have even heard of it. Yes, that's right. And to reiterate, we aren't just talking about chemistry. We're talking about a method that is so widely used that when the journal Nature compiled the top 100 cited papers of all time in 2014, 12 of them were on this particular method, including two in the top 10. And that list included all chemistry, biology, physics, medicine, crystallography, statistics, maths, everything. So what is this great idea that has become as of comparable importance to chemists as NMR? Its name is Density Functional Theory, or DFT, and today we're going to discuss where it comes from and how people use it in the world of chemistry. Along the way, we'll consider some of the hottest papers recently published, have an interview with Professor Fred Manby from the University of Bristol, and put the fun into density functional theory. Right, before we start, a quick warning. This week might get a bit tricky, but we figured that because DFT is such a widespread technique, it was worth explaining. Plus, we think you can handle it. And the reason that it's going to be tricky is that we're going to have to cover quantum mechanics in around four minutes. At the heart of quantum mechanics, there lies a fundamental equation called the Schrodinger equation. Now, you might think this equation must be incredibly complex, but actually it has a deceptively simple form. In fact, I'll tell you it right now. It's h psi equals e psi. That's it, h psi equals e psi. And in this equation, e is the energy of our molecule and psi is something called the wave function. And basically all of computational chemistry is trying to solve this equation to find e and psi. But it's not as simple as just rearranging the equation because h is not a normal number, but something called an operator, which obeys different mathematical rules. You may be wondering how useful it is just to have the energy of a molecule, but in fact, using this we can work out a huge amount of information about the system. In isolation, the energy of one molecular configuration is not that helpful. The idea is that we repeat the process for many different starting configurations of the same molecule and so know the energy for all possible structures. From this we can find the equilibrium geometry as well as properties such as bond vibrational energies which are important for reactions. However, despite the simple form of the Schrodinger equation, solving it completely accurately is actually very difficult and can take an extremely long time, even on the massive computers we have available. The reason for this is that the wave function, psi, gets more and more complicated the greater number of electrons in the molecule. In fact, if we double the number of electrons in the system, the time taken to solve the Schrodinger equation squares. And so if you go from hydrogen to, say, benzene, I have to raise the calculation time to the power of 42, which, as you can imagine, is an impossibly long time. So scientists spend a lot of time trying to find techniques which approximate solutions to the Schrodinger equation, which are still highly accurate, but much less time-consuming. Then, three scientists, Hohenberg, Cohn and Sham, hit an absolute gold mine, which won them the Nobel Prize in 1998. They realised that we can solve the Schrodinger equation exactly if we know the electron density around a molecule, where the electron density is described by a function, leading to the name density functional theory. And on top of this, they proved there must exist a universal function for describing the electron density in molecules. But what they couldn't say is what that functional was, or even how to find it. So scientists then began to explore what this function might look like, 
They worked out it must contain terms accounting for electron kinetic energy, electron nuclear interactions, and electron electron interactions. The problem is, while some of the terms are known, the exact form of one of the terms, called the exchange correlation function, is not. However, the advantages of DFT are too good to waste, as it is much faster than solving the Schrödinger equation using the explicit wave function. So what do we do? Well, we guess a form for the missing term. Yes, and here is where the controversy at the heart of DFT begins. Theoretically speaking, hey. <laughs> theoretically speaking, if we put an exact density into DFT, we will get out an exact energy. However, the best we can do is put in an approximate density and therefore get out an approximate energy. And it's very difficult to tell how good that approximation is. Yes, and on top of this, there are now hundreds, if not thousands, of proposed approximations for this exchange correlation term, each working well for a different set of molecules, so it is often hard to know which one to choose. So we have this weird situation where there's this very robust and rigorous theory, but with scientists almost guessing the last part. Some people are not a fan of this, but others say if it works, which it does seem to, then, well, it works. Yes, and for all the criticism that is levelled at DFT, if used carefully and properly, it does give remarkably good results. It really can't be overemphasised that DFT has been a revolution in the study of chemical systems computationally. For a lot of things, it really is the only technique that is accurate enough and quick enough to get any meaningful answer at all, which is why last year 10,000 papers used DFT in their work. Now, if DFT confuses you, I'm not surprised, it confuses us too. Luckily, we're joined in the lab today by Professor Fred Manby from the University of Bristol, who is an expert on the subject of DFT and uses and develops DFT functionals and writes software to implement it. Okay, Fred, thanks for joining us in the lab today. To kick off, I imagine a lot of people are thinking, why is it so difficult to find an expression for the exchange correlation function? Well, the exchange correlation functional is the part of the energy expression that captures all of the quantum detail of the interactions between electrons. And so it's basically impossible to find a single simple expression for it because to do so would be the same as just solving the whole problem of quantum mechanics. And so if you did manage to find an exact form of the exchange correlation function, would you be able to write it down on a bit of paper or what, what might it look like? I mean, people assume that it won't be possible to find a simple expression that could be written down. So if it's a complex thing, what does that mean? In the formal sense, there is an exact expression for the exchange correlation functional. That is, you use the information about the system that can be deduced from the density to reconstruct the full quantum problem you were trying to solve, and then you solve it. But of course, that's no easier than just solving the problem you started mm -hmm. with. Yeah. So that's a theoretical construction of the functional, not, not a practical one. So we've said basically it's impossible to find an exact functional. So how would we go about making an approximation towards that functional? Well, the approximations that have been developed over decades of research in this area variously are built on simplified models of the behavior of electrons and on ideas drawn from different aspects of theoretical physics and chemistry. And they're often categorized as different rungs of a ladder, whereas you go higher up the ladder, you get in principle to higher accuracy. The honest truth is that is only partially true because this ladder doesn't really lead to guaranteed increasing accuracy. And one of the great challenges of DFT is that nobody has a way to make a systematic pathway to making more accurate functionals. 
So even if you can afford more computer time, there isn't a systematic way to get a more accurate result. So I guess the thing with some wave function based methods is that you always know you are going to get an answer that is higher than the true energy. If they're variational. If they're variational. So you always know if you're getting closer and closer to the correct answer. That, that's DFT certainly true for true. variational wave function methods, that's right. Yeah. And, and, and even, even for methods that aren't variational, there are typically hierarchies of methods where you can guarantee that you get more and more accurate mm-hmm. as you go further into the hierarchy, albeit at greater computer cost. So is this right? So one way you can design a functional is you put in lots of variables into your function and then you fit it to experimental data. Is that right? That's a kind of almost valid way of designing it, a functional. It's certainly a way that many people design <laughs> functionals. Uh, and, you know, you hear increasingly about the way that machine learning is going to be able to solve a huge range of problems in science and perhaps finding accurate exchange correlation functionals is one of those. People obviously have differing views about the legitimacy of just fitting to a bunch of perhaps experimentally derived data. Pragmatists think that it's fine because it results in approximations that are useful for some particular set of problems. And purists or the more theoretically minded people think that it's grotesque because it doesn't start (laughs) from fundamental equations of quantum mechanics and then make rigorous derivations from that point. I guess my perspective is somewhere in between those. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, so this has been a very kind of hot topic in the literature recently. So there were these two papers published in January 2017 in Science. The first one's entitled, A Conundrum for Density Functional Theory. DFT studies may sometimes get the right results for the wrong reasons. And then the second one, DFT is straying from the path toward the exact functional. And this basically covers that idea, I think, that the more we use kind of experimental results to fit these functionals, perhaps the less accurate over time we're actually getting. Yes, yes, that's possible. And, and it's definitely true that the great variety of available approximations can be abused in the sense that because there are so many different approximate functionals, you can get basically any answer you want. And one of those answers will certainly agree with experiment. But obviously that's not a predictive thing and therefore is in itself not very useful. So if that's all you're doing with DFT, you might as well not bother. But the serious researchers who use DFT, of course, take meticulous and careful steps to calibrate the approximations they're trying to use on similar types of problems to the one they're trying to solve. And then you can say with slightly greater confidence that you're going to get reliable answers. But yes, it's certainly true that by focusing specifically on the calculation of ground state energies, It may be that as time's gone on, approximations to the exchange correlation functional have got worse for the calculation of other properties. That is perfectly possible. So do you think almost we're reaching sort of the limit of what we can do with DFT? Are we sort of pushing a method that can't go any further a bit too hard, maybe? Are we trying to squeeze too much out of it? I think I would agree with the statement that we're trying to squeeze too much out of the available ideas in DFT. I think I would agree with that. But, you know, the development of functionals has been characterized by a series of really big ideas, not not very many in total, for distinct ideas, actually, but a small number of big ideas about how to improve accuracy. And we don't know that there isn't another big idea around the corner that could dramatically improve accuracy. It won't solve all the problems. That's certainly not possible. But it could be that there is still another step change in accuracy out there that would make uh, DFT an even more useful method for modeling in chemistry. So say you want to do a DFT calculation on this chemical system you're looking at. There are thousands of possible functionals you can use. They'll all give you a slightly different answer. How can you choose which is the best one for your system? Carefully. 
<laughs> and that is not the approach that's taken in almost all of the calculations in the literature, it's safe to say. I mean, you know, because DFT is extremely widely used and it is probably predominantly used by people whose background is not in the theoretical development of DFT. So what you'll find if you look at the literature is there's a very small number of approximations that are very widely used, approximations with names like B3LIP and PBE and PBE0. And these functionals are often quite reliable and they're very widely used, but they're not necessarily the best choice for a given particular type of chemical problem. So I think the best practitioners in the field try to identify a set of simple chemical problems that exhibit the kind of process or structure or phenomenon that they're interested in and for which there's experimental information or for which the system is simple enough that you can do an accurate calculation. And then they calibrate uh, different functionals against that set of reliable data. And that allows them to get a feel about which, which kinds of approximations work well and which don't. So as well as designing DFT functionals and writing code, you also obviously use DFT as part of your research. So how do you apply it to real systems? Oh, sure. So in the work that we do in my group on photosynthesis, one of the questions that you have to answer is, what are the excitation energies of the chlorophyll molecules that make up the light-absorbing part of the photosynthetic membrane? And chlorophyll is quite a large molecule, and the frequency of light that it absorbs depends on the environment that it's found in the protein. And so it's convenient to be able to do thousands of calculations of the excitation energy in slightly different protein environments. And it's effectively the only computational method that can do that is DFT. But there again, we were careful to choose the functional and other details of the approximations we use to reproduce, for example, solution phase spectra of chlorophyll so that we knew that it was basically reliable for that quantity. So given you're doing thousands of these calculations, how long might one of them take on the supercomputer using DFT? I think for the excited states, it may be 10 minutes per molecule, something of that sort. I can't remember okay. precisely, but something like And if you try to do it with some other wave function methods, so if you try to do something like couple cluster on it to get to that kind of... That's right. So you could do it with a state-of-the-art implementation of couple cluster theory using a range of approximations and technological developments that have been made in that field over the years. But it would certainly take enormously longer than that. I mean, exactly how long, I don't know, but maybe mm -hmm. perhaps a day, I don't know. But it would take a lot longer. Wow, okay. So that's like, I guess it's more than 100 times faster. So I guess these projects wouldn't be feasible if you weren't using DFT. Yes, I think there are many projects where DFT is the only technique that can actually be used to solve the problem. So that's very interesting. And in a previous episode on biosimulation, we actually very briefly touched on embedding, which I know is your new kind of baby, as it were. <laughs> so how does that work? Oh, yes. Well, an important way to think about that is through the Nobel Prize that was awarded in 2013. And that was for a method with the acronym, everything in this field, of course, has acronyms, uh, QMMM which involves taking some complex problem and carving out a small region where detailed calculation is needed and describing the rest of the chemical environment or the solid or the material or the protein perhaps using a more approximate and classical type of model. So those methods were Nobel Prize worthy because they enabled an immense flourishing of computational chemistry, taking into much more complex chemical problems. And I've been working on methods that are sort of an extension of that idea, but in the regime where you have to treat the chemical environment in a quantum mechanical way, 
but you still want to treat it more efficiently than the highest level of theory that you've preserved for the very special region where something important is happening. So that's the idea if we have like a big enzyme or something, we only actually care really about the active site. Yes, that would be absolutely the classic example, but also, for example, a molecule reacting at a catalytic surface or a molecule interacting with a transition metal complex that might be operating as a catalyst. So there are many there are many cases where there's a natural separation of length scale into a small chemically or physically important region and then a some kind of complex environment. And embedding methods are really about tackling problems of that shape. And that really relies on the fact that DFT is so quick, right? That we can actually use it as a QM method yes. embedded in yeah. sort of classical Yes, exactly. And DFT is used in those embedding theories in two ways, either as the high accuracy method for the small region of interest or as the low accuracy method for describing a complex environment. It really just depends on the context as to which of those is the appropriate use of DFT. And so where do you think DFT is heading for the future? Well, I think that there are certainly grounds to believe that it'll keep on being extremely widely used in chemistry In biochemical problems, in materials science, there's no particular evidence that that's going to slow down. I think that the interesting thing is to try to think very hard about the next big step in the available approximations, although many people think about that and it's extremely hard to uh, make a significant advance in that aspect of the theory. But yeah, I mean, it's a Marmite-like theory. Some people love it, some people hate it, but I absolutely am sure that it's here to stay for the foreseeable future. So you don't think it's possible that with increasing computing power, these more accurate wave function based methods might not make DFT almost redundant for even big calculations? I think that's highly unlikely because there are some aspects of the treatment of quantum mechanics of electrons in molecules that are surprisingly simple. It really is often not a deeply complicated quantum mechanical problem. And so then these approximate and computationally very cheap methods like density functional theory can do a good enough job that it can be a very useful addition to other tools in chemistry. Well, thank you very much for talking to us today. You're very welcome. So thanks again to Professor Fred Manby for talking to us. I thought that was super interesting. DFT as a Marmite-like theory is probably the best way I've heard it described in a while. Yeah, and we know there's lots of you out there who are using DFT in your research, so we'd actually be really interested in hearing your responses this week. Please do let us know why you like it and what makes you annoyed about it and which pitfalls to avoid. We'd love to get a discussion going on Twitter and Reddit. Yeah, but we know people can get a bit overexcited about DFT, so please just keep it restrained. (laughs) And also, if you have any questions or comments for us, please feel free to tweet us on at theorypod or find us on Instagram as theoretically speaking podcast. And finally, Tim, you promised to put the fun into density functional theory. Obviously, we've had a lot of that already, Mm -hmm. uh, but do you have a final fun DFT fact? Uh, Yeah, I do. So I stole this from Professor Rob Patton on Twitter, but uh, here it goes. Which highly cited paper contains the following citation? Genesis, chapter 28, verses 10 through 12. (laughs) I'll give you a clue. It's DFT related. (laughs) Okay. Well, I'll leave that hanging for people to go and find out themselves. Um, so that's it for this week. And next week is actually our last episode for the series. But it's going to be a cracker because we'll be talking to Professor Alan Asperuguzic from Harvard University on quantum computing in chemistry, which I am super excited about. Yeah, me too. So be sure to tune in then. So as usual, thanks go to the TMCS and the EPSLC for supporting this podcast. 
Thanks to you for listening, and we'll be back next week at the same time.